You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. I'm on the tennis court. I'm there to win. I don't care about the crowd. And I think when you play your best tennis is when you don't even, you're oblivious. You don't even know that the crowd's there. You're out there to win a tennis match and to try to stay as calm as you can and to block that out and just stay focused. Pro tennis champion Tracy Austin. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. You know, to this day, no one else has ever done what Tracy Austin did at the U.S. Open. She won the U.S. Open women's singles title in 1979 when she was just 16, making her the youngest woman ever to do that. During a professional tennis career, Tracy Austin won 30 titles. But by age 21, her career had all but been derailed by a series of injuries, And that led to a lot of speculation and rumor about what was really going on with Tracy Austin. Well, in 1992, she wrote a book to tell her own story in her own words about what was going on and try to dispel some of those rumors. The book was called Beyond Center Court. And that's when I met her. So here now from 1992, Tracy Austin. I wrote the book because for years people had been coming to me saying that they thought that my story was a little different as far as uh, starting so young on the circuit at 14, really the first one that was out there and uh, asking me how the other women treated me, how how people in my family reacted, how my friends reacted, boyfriends reacted, that whole situation. You know, what it was like to win the U.S. Open at 16, the youngest, and to be number one in the world at 17, and then have injuries and have to go off the circuit really when I was 21 years old. And how did that affect me? Because my whole life was geared towards playing tennis, and then, of course, uh, the the rug was pulled out from underneath me. Then I started back playing again in 88 and 89. I got in a car accident. And that's at the time somebody came to me and said, we think that uh, this might be a good time to write a book because you'll be in therapy for a year. We know that you'll be bored to tears and have a lot of time on your hands. And so I thought most athletes really write a book at the end of their career to talk about their career because I plan to have the rest of my life be pretty normal and you know, get married and have kids and, and uh, you know, nothing too spectacular. So uh, I thought this was a good time to write the book. There's a lot of misconceptions. I mean, everybody knows you burned out. Right. Well, everybody knows incorrectly, actually. And what happens is that a couple of reporters start something, and uh, other reporters just kind of tag along with it. It's easy. Um, it's easier to tag along than really to get the real story. And and what happens is it kind of snowballs. And I was in Rolling Hills, uh, California, where I lived. Uh, I started out with some bad back injuries. I had a sciatic nerve problem that the doctors diagnosed incorrectly and uh, I went to many, many doctors around the country and even a doctor in LA gave me a cortisone shot in my buttock saying it was a pulled muscle and of course that wasn't what it was. So finally I went to a chiropractor and got that healed but I went back too quickly all the time and I would get re-injured again. So to me, burned out means that you don't want to play anymore, that you're not enjoying the game, uh, that you're hating it and and you don't love it anymore. And and the whole time I really loved it. I was just injured and I didn't really have enough gumption at that time. If that happened now and I'm as confident now, I'd, I'd call up whoever wrote that and say, excuse me, sir, but unless you know really what you're writing about, then don't write the story. Why don't you call me and ask me about it? Then I was very shy. And so, as I said, the snowball effect would happen. I was in in uh, Rolling Hills, injured, depressed because I couldn't be playing, wanting to be playing, and people were, were saying these things. Even Billie Jean and Chrissy made comments about it, and so it really did hurt a lot. And uh, 
so that I feel like it, you know, to me, burnout again is, is some, somebody who doesn't enjoy uh, the sport. And, and I really love the sport all the way through or else I wouldn't have come back in 88 because I really had nothing to prove. I'd already been number one in the world. The only reason why I came back in 88 was because I love the game. I still do today. It's it's a passion for me. But with tennis, such a mental game, it's easy for especially people who don't, who have never played tennis professionally to assume that if you leave the game at 21, it must be because you're burned out. Well, I mean, I had injuries, so I mean, True. you might want to think that that might be a possibility. Yeah, 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 yeah that, that might have entered the picture, I suppose. A little yeah, bit. I mean, just a perfect example is uh, one reporter starts saying that my mother made my tennis dresses, and I mean, my mother never made my tennis dresses. They would have fallen apart and fallen off and everything else. But of course, in every article, even major, major magazines after that, they said, well. Jeannie Austin, Tracy's mother, makes her tennis dresses. So you've got to wonder, you know, don't believe everything you read out there. True. But it's not, that's something else that was fascinating about this book. Uh, as, you, as you follow your progress through the industry, you follow almost the, the maturation of the industry and the marketing that goes with it, too. You know, who pays for their own clothes anymore? Who, pay, you know, right. who doesn't have a contract with a, with a racket maker? Right. I didn't know they don't make wooden rackets anymore. Right. Actually, it's, it's come a long way. And in the beginning, actually, I didn't want a contract because it was kind of the thing to do to have Ted Tinling who was a designer make your dresses and it was an honor to be dressed in Ted Tinling dresses he didn't make them for everybody he didn't let everybody buy them I should say they were like a hundred dollars for a dress um, so but it was just an honor to have Ted make them and of course now there's so much more marketing involved the agents are going to kids uh, at 10 11 and talking to them about a pro career and the possibilities of how much money they can make and I really never had any I played in the juniors until I was 15 and I never had any agent approach me um, in the juniors or at the junior events and uh but now, of course, they're they're there at a very young age. The whole process has changed. It's, it's much more of a business. I, I, I'm sure you've had you've thought about this a lot. I'm sure, but have you uh, raised the rung a little bit? I mean, do do kids are agents approaching 13 and 14 year olds now because hey, look, Tracy won when she was 16. Right. I think a little bit. I mean, I, I don't want to say I'm responsible totally, but I think I'm responsible a lot because I was the first one to start at 14. So as you say, people and parents and agents were thinking, hey, it is a possibility for little Susie to play at 14. And then I won the U.S. Open at 16, the youngest ever. And so people again thought, well, geez, you know, it's possible to be very successful and, and win big tournaments when you're 16. So there are many more people that are playing uh, when they're younger and people are planning for it. I just, there's a man I talked to. I did an interview with a man who had two uh, very successful young girls. They're about 9 and 11, or they were 9 and 11 at the time that I talked to him. And I said, so how did your girls get involved? I was covering an exhibition that they were playing, and I said, how'd you girls get involved in tennis? And he said, well, you know, I saw this person receive a runner-up check for $30,000, and I said to my wife, you know, we're going to have two more kids, and we're going to have them be tennis players. So that's planned. That's really planned far in advance. Uh, uh, the, the, I don't know. Something just doesn't ring quite. I, I, <laughs> I can't imagine your folks, you know, uh, uh, when, even even bringing you to the court at such an early age saying, you know, someday she's going to make thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a tournament. You know, this is going to be great for us. Right. Well, actually, that's that's what I'm saying is that it is very different. A lot of it is a business. Uh, you know, I think 
Billie Jean started the game because she loved the game. She still does today. Um, I can speak for myself. I, I love the game. My mom worked at a tennis club six days a week, and I have three older brothers and an older sister who all played. And we were there six days a week hanging out and we weren't playing tennis. We were playing soccer and volleyball and basketball and every other sport and having a good time. And, and I just got lucky in the fact that went on to be a professional tennis player. It wasn't something that we planned for a long time before. The, the normalness of your growing up years also will strike the reader of this book. How can you possibly have anything resembling a normal t uh, childhood and, and teenagerhood and, and uh, adolescence when you're going all over the country winning thousands of dollars, winning cars, getting your face on Sports Illustrated? You can't have a normal childhood, can you? Well, it was, I wouldn't say it was 100% normal. I mean, definitely I wasn't. Uh, I missed the senior prom because I was at Wimbledon, um, which, of course, I, I wouldn't change. I wouldn't say it's completely 100% normal because not everybody's getting interviewed by reporters and, and dealing with adults a lot of the time. But for what I went through as far as uh, the tennis, and I wouldn't change it. I loved every second of it. Uh, I think I was able to stay pretty normal, number one, because I had a good, solid family background. I had a, a family that was... Uh, very supportive. Everybody was involved in tennis, so we had a common ground. And also the club that I was at, I was uh, with people that I grew up with. So I knew them the whole time. They didn't care if I was good or if I was bad. And we just kind of hung out. And, and, and again, you know, it was a pretty pretty solid family background. The, yeah, the, 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 what comes across is that tennis was not a refuge from a broken home for you. That You didn't turn to tennis the way some inner city kids turned to basketball because you had nowhere else to go. It very much, from the beginning, it struck me that it was a very much a very family-oriented uh, thing for you. Yeah, it was, everything was very positive, and so that's what made, again, the injuries at 21 even tougher to uh, handle, is because everything had been so positive in my life, everything had been rosy, and then all of a sudden at 21, you know, the injuries, I'm not able to do what I love to do. And everybody as an athlete, I think, would love to be able to decide when they want to stop, when they've had enough, when they felt like their career has been complete. And so, so that was very hard and, and made it very hard on me. After this short break, Tracy Austin ponders whether there is agony as well as thrill in victory. back to my 1992 conversation with Tracy Austin. Uh, we've heard many descriptions over the years from athletes and, and performers, politicians at the convention, what it must feel like <laughs> to be in front of a crowd of hundreds, thousands, maybe tens of thousands, on television, millions of people. Right. They're all watching what you're doing. Right. You're the center of attention right now. The camera's on you. The attention is focused on you. How do, can you concentrate on what you have to do at that point? Yeah, just in thinking about it when you're asking the question, I can see a politician, they're really playing to the crowd. They're looking at the crowd. They're trying to get a reaction from the crowd, and that's really what they're up there for. Uh, I'm on the tennis court. I'm there to win. I don't care about the crowd. And I think when you play your best tennis is when you don't even you're oblivious you don't even know that the crowd's there you're not worried about the lady up there in the green dress who keeps talking and keeps walking around and you know now she brought a hot dog down and her baby's crying and everything else so you got to block all of that out and you're out there to win a tennis match and to try to stay as calm as you can and, and to to block that out and just stay focused so you're not out there because of the crowd to try to get a reaction from the crowd um, and and to please them, I guess. I mean, you're you're there to entertain them, but you're you're basically there to win. And uh, but it pumps you when they cheer, doesn't it? It can, it can. I'll say that uh, one of the the best match and the and the most fun matches that I've 
played was when uh, I played Martina Navratilova in, in Dallas. I was 15 years old, and Martina was living in Dallas at the time, and I was very much an underdog because I'd never beaten Martina before, and she was just top of the world then. And so I'd say half the people were for me, half were her, for her, and everybody was cheering, and we got down to the third set. She was up 5-2, and I came roaring back, and we got into a tiebreaker, and at that time it was a nine-point tiebreaker where it was winner-take-all in the last point. Got to four-all. Whoever won that point won, and I don't know how, but luckily I won. And, and that was fun because the crowd really did make a difference because you wanted them to erupt. But most of the time, they're pretty quiet. Something else that, that you showed us in your book that, that you rarely see in, in sports-oriented books is what it feels like when you beat Martina later on and she's crying as you're standing there next to her. You beat Chris and you go in the locker room afterwards and she's there crying. And it, 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 it takes some of the, the, the joy of victory away, doesn't it? Well, I, I beat Chris uh, three times in 11 days, and that third time was in Cincinnati, and I beat her all three of them. Like, uh, at one time, I beat her five times in a row, and I, I don't think that she could take it anymore. It's like sick of playing this little kid who keeps beating me. And so I went in, and again, three times in 11 days, I went in after the press conference into the locker room, and there was a glass partition into the trainer's room, and I could see her in there on the table just crying, crying her head off, and I felt really bad. So I just took my shower and got out of there as soon as I can because it wasn't I mean, I didn't take pleasure in, in seeing her so upset. I was excited that I had won. Uh, and then, of course, at, at the U.S. Open against Martina in 1981, I mean, I should have realized that she was going to win umpteen times after that. But at that time, she had never won it before. And she really had me. And I, I came back and uh, won 7-6 in the third on that match as well. And she was really crying before the match point began. I mean, she double faulted on the last point because I don't think she could see through her tears. She was just so upset. So to see a grown woman cry in front of 20,000 people and, uh, and on TV, you know, I felt really bad for her because she is a very sensitive person. It's a very intense sport. That's not like the Super Bowl. I mean, there are, there are you know, there's a whole team of guys. If right. they lose, they can go out of the locker room and probably some of them cry, but we don't right. feel bad because it's a team. Yeah. But when it's one-on-one, -on -one, when your skill is matched against, directly against somebody else's skill or luck. Yeah. Well, what was unusual about Martina, that incident, was that she showed um, her heart. Her heart was right on her sleeve. I mean, she was crying in front of everybody. So, you know, it kind of took a little bit of my victory away. I don't mean in a bad way because I'm sure she felt that. It just was hard for me to enjoy, you know, when she was so upset. That doesn't mean you would have let her win. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't. You know, there, there, there is that temptation, too. You know, the, the parent says, oh, here, I'll let you win at checkers. <laughs> you know what? I've never been that way. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I can't picture you that way. I mean, you've, you've always got – I, I, want, I, want, I was curious, though, about one thing. As intense as you are and as devoted as you are to being the best, why aren't you a brat? Why aren't you throwing rackets? Why aren't you uttering obscenities and yelling at umpires? Why aren't you – Something I can't say. Okay. Uh, well, I think there are a few men that are like that. Uh, not too many women. Maybe Pam Shriver and Gigi Fernandez really get emotional and throw their racket and, and get, get outrageous like that. Number one, it's not my nature. Uh, number two, if it was my nature, I would definitely try to control it because you lose your concentration. I find that there's only three people that really can get upset like that and still keep their concentration, and most of the time it actually hurts their opponent, and that's Ely Nastasi, Jimmy Connors, and John McEnroe. But other people, when they get upset, their game seems to deteriorate because they're, they're not focused. Looks darn good on TV, though. 
<laughs> you think? <laughs> no. I think it looks ugly. It, it, it adds some drama to this otherwise very stately game. Yes. <laughs> uh, what, what, just a, a technical point. What is the difference between grass and clay? And uh, I, I don't understand, it, it, from, from someone who has never played pro tennis, I mean, right. it, it, to, the, to the observer, you see it on television, it kind of looks the same. Yeah, good question, actually. Um, grass courts are very favorable to the serve and volley player because if you've ever tried to bounce a ball on grass, it doesn't bounce up very high. It stays very low, so therefore you want to try to hit as many balls out of the air as you can and if you do stay back uh, you know your, your balls are going to bounce so low you've got to bend your knees more and that's what makes it amazing is that Andre Agassi won the Wimbledon this year from the baseline because he really had to hit many balls that were bouncing and you get uneven bounces so you want to go to the net as much as you can on grass. On clay courts they're very slow the ball hits the clay it's like a red dust uh, in Europe over here we play on hard true which is green and, and more granular but when the ball hits it really bites and it slows down the ball and so you can hit a powerful powerful shot and the other person's going to get it most probably because the ball is really slowed down by by the clay court. So grass is very fast, very slick. The ball bounces quickly off the surface. The clay is very slow. You're going to get longer points. M mostly people that have uh, stay at the baseline are very steady. And, and hard courts, you can get a mixture of, of either. You could have a very slow hard court or a very fast hard court, just depending on how much sand they mixed in, mix into the mixture. They put a lot of sand, then again, the ball's going to bite and it's going to slow it down. How much of what you do is skill? How much is luck? Um, I don't think any's luck, really. I think uh, I'm trying to think. Not a bad think. bounce or a good bounce, or yeah, but you know, somehow all the champions use the use that luck. I mean, I saw Boris Becker playing a match the other day, and he hit two let cords in a row on two points. And again, people would say, "Oh, that's lucky," but he's hit that shot probably. He wasn't aiming for the let cord, but he was probably aiming six feet over the net or six inches, excuse me, over the net. So it, it's again, I think it's skill. He got a little lucky in that that you know it, it went six inches lower and it hit tipped the net. But uh, I'd have to say most of it most of it is skill. It's uh, definitely not a lucky game. It's uh, footwork. It's how fast you are. It's how mentally tough you are. How strong uh, your strokes are, and uh, you know everything mixed together. So people ask about what makes a champion. There's so many different qualities. You can put a lot of different things together and, and make a champion. Some are missing one ingredient, another one's missing another ingredient, but it's just to add them all up to, uh, to make the champion. Like Monica Seles. Monica Seles has a good serve, a decent serve, not a humongous serve. Uh, unbelievable ground strokes, unbelievable mental ability. She can't volley at all, can't volley worse beans. But she doesn't have to because she hits her ground strokes so well. So, again, it's just finding that right combination. That's why Babe Ruth didn't have to worry about stealing bases. He never had any steal. He always hit home runs. That's right. Tracy Austin is 60 now. She works as a network TV tennis commentator. And you can get a copy of Beyond Center Court by clicking on the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. And that's where you'll also find my 2004 interview with someone else who knows what it's like to be a teenage tennis star, Andrea Yeager. Here I was a professional tennis player earning all this money, number two in the world, doing commercials. You know, people are applauding me everywhere I go. And then I'm injured. You know, it's a career-ending injury, seven shoulder surgeries. And I know in my heart... God was blessing me. And my 2000 interview with the Olympic gymnast, Mary Lou Retton. That smile that you see on the outside, that I'm somewhat known for and famous for, comes from a place deep inside of me. And I really am fundamentally happy. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. 
And you know you can find us on every major podcast platform. Thanks so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything. As of this weekend, it's been a full year since someone attacked Salman Rushdie on stage at a lecture event in New York. So we'll revisit my 2002 interview with Salman Rushdie. One of the things that I think people stopped saying about my writing at the point at which the Iranian threats emerged, you know, is that a lot of it is comic, you know. And one of the things not often said about the satanic verses is that it's in large part a funny novel. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thompson.